Hey, thank you so much, um, Caitlin and Jenny, for serving us so well. Um, big shout out to uh, Tim and Lindsay Wickham, who are behind the camera. You cannot see them, uh, but a big, big thanks to Tim and Lindsay for all the work that they've been putting in. Um, hey, if you have your Bible, um, I'm going to be in a couple different places. Our primary text is going to be in 1 Peter chapter 1. Uh, we're going to begin a series today in 1 Peter. I'm going to be referencing John chapter 21 and Genesis chapter 12 as well uh, as we get going. Uh, for those of you that joined in a little late, those of you who are visiting, as it were, my name is Paul and I'm the lead pastor here. And uh, I'm so glad that you've joined us. And church family, I, I miss you and I cannot wait till we get to be together again. Um, I hope it's sometime soon. Um, but if not, this is, I guess, uh, the next best thing that we've got here. And so, again, I'm glad you're here. Um, so uh, let me begin by um, talking our sermon title today, and probably the same title tomorrow is going to, or, or not tomorrow, we're not gathering tomorrow, next Sunday, uh, an established identity in exile. Um, I, I intended on getting through verses 1 through 9 today, but I'm only going to get through the first two verses. I'm giving myself a little freedom. I'm not going to pin myself into a, a, a rigid schedule uh, through First Peter. So I'm going to give myself a little flexibility and just plow through this slowly. Um, but the reason that we're going through First Peter is because Peter, and I'm going to talk about this in a few minutes, he, he's writing to, to Christians who are in exile. And uh, there's some ways, and again, I'm going to talk about this, that we are in exile. And so I think Peter has a lot to say to us here uh, in this letter that he writes to the church. And so um, before we get going, I want to talk a little bit about who Peter is. Peter, I think, stands out to most of us because of some of the not-so-great things uh, in his life. You know, most notably, you know, after he'd given up everything to follow Jesus, and, and that's exactly what he did for about three to three and a half years. He followed Jesus uh, with everything. Um, but in the end, he completely turned his back on Jesus during his most vulnerable moment. Um, Peter denies Jesus, and after he denies Jesus, he runs away just before Jesus uh, is crucified. And, and it appeared, at least when we read the gospel accounts, that he's gone back to his old way of life. He was a fisherman, and so he goes back and, and starts fishing again. And so we find Peter again after this epic failure in his life in John chapter 21. He, along with a few of the other disciples, is out on the Sea of Tiberias. They're fishing. It's a slow day out on the sea. When they hear someone yelling from the shore, are you having any luck out there? You know, they hear. And so they look over and they answer back, no, we're not catching anything. It's a slow day. And then the most odd thing happens. The stranger that is talking to them or yelling from the shore yells out again. And he says, throw your net on the other side of the boat. That's where the fish are. Now, I don't know about you, but if some stranger comes up to me and tries to tell me how to do my job, one that I've been doing for a long time, one that um, I'm like, it's my profession, I'm probably not going to do exactly what this stranger tells me to do without some sort of qualification about who this stranger is and what kind of knowledge they have. But in any event, the disciples do exactly what this stranger suggests that they do. They throw the nets out on the other side of the boat. And wouldn't you know, 
The stranger is right. The nets fill up with fish, and so many, in fact, that they can't even get them into the boat. And so while they are struggling and working to do everything they can to get this haul of fish into the boat, something seems to register with John. And as they're working to try and pull all of these fish aboard, John looks over to Peter in apparent wonder and excitement, and he says, Peter, it's the Lord. Now from here on out, Peter is the focus of John's narrative. And we're going to see him focus in on Peter the rest of the way. The disciples make their way to the shore, Peter swimming to shore. Peter arrives and there's a fire with a meal prepared beside it. Jesus had prepared some fish and bread and the disciples gather around and they eat. After Jesus has resurrected from the grave, they eat together. And when breakfast is over, a conversation between Jesus and Peter is highlighted. And I want to take a quick look at this conversation. We'll begin in uh, verse 15 of John chapter 21. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said, yes, Lord, you, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved, maybe frustrated, because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him a third time, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you to where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after the saying, he said to him, follow me. Three times Jesus says to him, feed my sheep. He says, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. The one who denied, the one who had failed, the one who was afraid, locked up in that room with the other disciples, the one who was unsure about his future, the one to whom Jesus comes here in John chapter 21 after his resurrection, this is the one writing to the church here in 1 Peter. And as he writes this letter, there's a very real sense in which he's fulfilling his calling, the one that Jesus gave him here in John chapter 21. He's doing the work that Jesus gave. So the man writing the letter here that we're getting ready to start plowing through together, this is a man who knows what failure is all about. This is a man who understands what it means to be ashamed, confused, unsure, and afraid, he, exiled even. Right there in a locked up room, isolated from everyone else. Peter is writing from a place of firsthand knowledge and experience. And so what he's offering here in this little letter is sort of a traveler's guide for Christians living in uncertain times. He's reminding Christians who are deep in the struggle that their hope is anchored in their future and that their lives have a distinct purpose, even in the most uncertain of times. 
But before we begin navigating through this letter that Peter writes to Christian exiles, we need to take a moment and reflect on the fact that Peter knows experientially what God's grace is all about. We can read all through the gospel accounts of time after time that Peter just stuck his foot in his mouth. And by the way, I know what that's all about. And then we, we know about his epic failure. And then if you flip over to the book of Acts where the church is just getting going, we see Peter just spinning his wheels again time after time. And yet Jesus has a job for him, a task for him. Peter knows all about God's grace. This is who's writing to us. Someone who knows firsthand, experientially, what God's grace is all about. That's who Peter is. Who is Peter writing to in this letter? Well, let's read these first two verses and try and gain a little bit of an understanding. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion of Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So he's writing to people, by the way, who are in this kind of what we would know as modern-day Turkey. According to the foreknowledge of God, the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Peter, in short, is writing a letter to Christians who are in some way, shape, or form exiles. Now, now this term, if we're going to define it, is usually meant uh, to tell us about people uh, a person or a people group uh, who are being in some way like kept out of their native country. And this could be for political reasons, for punitive reasons, whatever it might be, but just kept away. In the original language, this word literally means a scattering or a dispersion. In fact, Peter uses this word dispersion here in these first couple verses. So think about like being scattered abroad, scattered about, scattered away. As Peter uses this term, it would have evoked thoughts of the Jewish exile to Babylon. They would have taken a place generations before. So the Jews hearing this term would have immediately been taken back to when they were held captive in Babylon. They were kept away from Jerusalem. They were exiled in Babylon. And again, here historians believe that Peter's writing to those who have been dispersed or exiled because of their faith. And these exiles that Peter is writing to, they're scattered throughout what we know as modern-day Turkey, again. And again, it's largely accepted that these Christians were being persecuted by King Nero. And by the way, just for the record, if we're keeping detailed notes, the gospel, even though it appeared... People were being scattered. People were being pressed. The gospel was absolutely flourishing under these conditions. Peter knew things were bad for many of his brothers and sisters, and he knew that things were likely to get worse. And so he writes a traveler's guide. He writes this field guide of sorts to, in hopes that the early Christians would know how to live in these unfamiliar and uncertain times. One of the things that's interesting here as you read through 1 Peter, and by the way, I would encourage you to read through 1 Peter. Um, and by the way, as you read, uh, hit me up. Uh, send me a message on Facebook or post on our wall if you have any questions uh, about First Peter that you'd like to see answered along the way. And I'll see what we can do as we navigate through to try and answer some of those questions. But one of the things that's really interesting is, is that poor, uh, Peter, as he writes, he's very forward-thinking. 
And what I mean by that is that though Peter does use various terms to describe this existence in exile, right? He uses the term exile. He uses the word strangers, pilgrims, right? Uh, This isn't primarily the thing he's trying to draw our attention to. As we navigate through all of the practical wisdom and insight that Peter will give us, you know, as it relates to living a life of exile, living in a situation like this, he's very careful to continually and strategically remind us of who we are, of our identity in Christ. And this is going to be the focus of our short conversation today, our identity in exile. But before we dig into that, let's broaden out this idea of exile just a bit more. You know, we already understand what the word means. We already know how Peter was using the term. And we already understand how the people that Peter was writing to were in exile. But a bit more broad and general kind of, kind of view of, of this, of what it means to be in exile is that uh, it means that you can be removed from that which is familiar, that which is safe, that which is comfortable, This is what an exile type of life is all about, being removed from the people or things that you love. You see, though we have not been scattered or dispersed in the same way that the people to whom Peter is writing were dispersed and scattered, we certainly do live in a new reality, one that isn't necessarily familiar, one that honestly isn't the most comfortable, And one that isn't very predictable. And again, this is what exile is all about. So there's a very real sense that all of the things Peter is writing, they are very relevant for our lives today. Make no mistake about it. This shelter in place, this social distancing, this is part of our existence right now. This is our new reality, and none of us really know how long these things are going to last. We don't know when things are going to get back to normal. This is our reality. And as I said last week, at some point we just have to come to terms with this. But we also need to recognize that though life has certainly changed, And though we have been presented with some new challenges and things aren't comfortable like they used to be, our identity in this new reality remains unchanged. What is our new identity? Well, Peter makes it very clear. We are the people of God, elect, chosen, set aside. Peter doesn't address these people in terms of their ancestry. He doesn't address them in terms of their moral background or on the terms of their social status, their wealth or their poverty, their ethnicity. He doesn't address them based on their political affiliation or anything else. There certainly may exist some clear identifiable realities within these constructs. However, this isn't necessarily how Peter wants them to think about themselves at the moment. There's a more pressing part of their identity, a more deeply rooted part of their identity that Peter is trying to sketch out for them. He wants them to be thinking in a very particular way about who they are. You know, I think it can be easy for us to forget who we are from time to time. I wonder if in the comfort and in the security that we've known for so long, right, in all of the busyness and in the pursuit of all that the American dream has to offer, that we've forgotten who we are as Christians. 
It's a good thing, I think, a helpful thing, a necessary thing for us to be reminded of who we are over and over again. We need to be intentional about reorienting our minds and hearts to the truth surrounding our identity. What tends to happen to us when we are not intentional, when we are not diligent about constantly reminding ourselves about who we are is that we become like a dilapidated old house. You know the one in the neighborhood, or you know the one in town, one that has not been maintained for some time. Slowly but surely, the elements outside eat away at it until it is no longer livable and it's condemned. I wonder if many of us have become like those types of people over the years, ones who have forgotten who they are. And when you look in, there's no sense of Christianity, no sense of who we are. You know, if this is you, you're not alone. By the way, Israel walked this path over and over again until she found herself in exile. And it was there in exile that she remembered who she was. Elect, chosen, set aside. It was there where she longed to be who her God had called her to be. And maybe, just maybe, here in our exile, you are remembering who God is called you to be. You are remembering, beginning to remember as things have slowed down, who you are in Christ. So who are we exactly? What primary primary characteristic is Peter highlighting about our identity? Well, we are people who by the mercy of God have been elected, chosen, Set aside for a particular purpose. Now we have to be careful here. Some, sometimes people get really hung up on words like elect. Oh no, I don't know what that means. I can't figure all that out. Or chosen or set aside. And so much so that they fail to recognize that terms like this actually help us understand our purpose here on the earth. So for us to understand kind of what it means that we are elect, chosen, and set aside, I want to turn back all the way to Genesis chapter 12, where we're first confronted with this idea of God's election or God's choosing or God having set someone aside. Let's read the first three verses of Genesis chapter 12 together. Now the Lord said to Abram, or Abraham, go from your country and your kindred And your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God came to Abraham. And what I want us to focus in on this morning is not so much how or even why God chose Abraham. People tend to get hung up on these sorts of things. But I want us to focus on the fact that he did choose Abraham. This is a biblical truth that we cannot simply ignore. And on the fact that he did so for a purpose. 
God never does anything haphazardly or without purpose. We kind of got an illusion of this in Psalm 139 that we read just a few minutes ago. What was that purpose? Why? What was the purpose for God choosing Abraham? It's very clear in Genesis chapter 12. He, he came to Abraham and he was blessing Abraham, choosing Abraham so that Abraham would be a blessing. He came to Abraham and he called Abraham out and set him aside so that in him all the families of the earth would be blessed. You see, God chooses people for a purpose. And we might not be able to put all the pieces together as to how or why. And that's okay. We don't necessarily need to be able to put all the pieces together. We just need to understand that it is a reality. We have been elected, we have been chosen, we have been set aside by our Heavenly Father. Even the, the Apostle Paul, who writes most of the New Testament, after discussing this idea of election for the better part of three chapters in his, in his letter to the Christians at Rome, he comes to this famous conclusion in Romans chapter 11, where he says, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom of the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given him a gift that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Amen. After an entire discourse on election and God choosing and God setting aside this was Paul's conclusion. Oh, the depth and of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his ways and inscrutable, his judgments inscrutable his ways. Church family, it's not for us to know how or why necessarily God does what he does, but we know that he does it for his glory and for his purpose here in the earth. What is important for us to understand as we try and kind of come to terms with our identity in exile is that we understand the purpose of our calling. By the way, our purpose in being elect, right, is Peter calls us the elect, the chosen, the set aside, the set apart people, is that our having been elected or chosen or set apart is for a purpose, and that purpose is an extension of the purpose for which Abraham was first chosen. Peter presses in on this in chapter 2. I want to turn over to chapter 2 and read verse 9. Peter says it again, but you are a chosen race. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. In other words, God's purpose is to set people aside from other uses so that they can be signposts to this new reality, to this new world. The new reality or the new world that has in fact already come into being through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. Notice Peter's language here again in verse 2, right? To those who are elect exiles, this is who we are. 
of the dispersion of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. What a way to start a letter, right? As we put together all of these things. Not only has God set us apart, and he has. Church family, what that means is God has known you. God does know you. God will continue to know you. As the psalm told us, as David told us in Psalm 139, God has known us before we were even born. But not only has God set us apart, he's determined, according to Peter, by the work of the Holy Spirit to keep us obedient. He uses this word sanctification. The sanctification of the Holy Spirit is the process by which we are continually being formed into the image of Christ. This is the work of our God, uh, of our God in our lives now. And, and he does this so that we can be the people who proclaim the excellencies of his goodness and his glory throughout all the earth in our city and its surrounding communities. This is the purpose for which we have been set apart. This is who we are, church family. We are the elect. We have been chosen. We have been set apart. And it has been, according to Peter, through the sacrifice of Jesus and for the sprinkling of his blood. This is the way in which we continue to be those signposts, right? Through the work of the Holy Spirit that is rooted in the, in the, the, the life, death, and burial of Jesus. Notice what Peter does here. As, as we kind of get towards the end of these first two verses. He takes our identity, right? And he says, hey, you, you are exiles, but you are chosen exiles. You are elect exiles. You have been set apart even as exiles. What that means, church family, is that God has not left you. God has not abandoned you, and God has not thrown away his purpose for your life. You still exist for his glory. But Peter takes our identity as elect, chosen, set-apart exiles, and he roots it in the soil of the gospel of Jesus. And his language could not be more calculated here. Remember how I mentioned just a few minutes ago about how Israel over and over again failed to remember who she was. The cycle of her life was that she forgot who she was and she went on her own way. She failed to remember that she was rescued by God out of Egypt. She was a nation precisely because of God's redemptive intervention that caused her to be delivered from her slavery to the Egyptians. Israel's entire calendar was centered on a holiday, a gathering, a feast that commemorated this key event of salvation in her history. This was called the Passover. And it was during this feast where Israel was reminded of the sacrifice of an innocent lamb that made her salvation possible. The sacrifice of this lamb where they would get blood and 
sprinkle it on the doorpost of their homes in Egypt. Peter, with his language, is trying to do the same thing here that the Passover was meant to do, to remind us of what had to be done in order for us to be set free, to immerse us in the gospel, evoking images of the cross when he talks to us about the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus, the necessary sacrifice for us to be set free. Our identity of being elect or chosen or set aside is rooted in the gospel of Jesus. And Peter takes us right back to the cross as he begins his letter. There is no situation, no circumstance, no exilic experience that can reverse what God has done for you in Christ. It is finished. In the cross of Christ, you are fully known and fully loved. In the cross of Christ, God's grace has been poured out and you are elect, chosen, set apart. Nothing, no one can ever change that. No experience, no circumstance, no situation can ever reverse that reality. You are elect, chosen, and set aside, even in this exile, because of the blood of Jesus. And God's work in you continues through the Holy Spirit so that you might continue to be formed into the image of Christ. By the way, just as a side note, as we get ready to end, I find it profound that the man who is taking us back to the cross is the very one who once did everything in his power to keep Jesus from going there. When we see the cross for what it is, it has great power to radically change our lives. Peter, certainly, as he begins this letter, doesn't want his readers to bury their heads in the sand and ignore their reality as exiles. And church family, it wouldn't do us any good to ignore uh, this new reality in which we live. It wouldn't do us any good to ignore what's going on or what's happening and just kind of look to the sky and look past uh, kind of the brutal things that are happening. However, though exile is the life of these Christians, Though there are some very real senses in which we live in exile, this is not our identity. You know, we're going to talk about the coronavirus for years to come. Hey, y'all remember when we were in lockdown? Hey, remember, you know, all, remember we were pulling our hair out? You know, remember we couldn't find any toilet paper? You know, we're going to talk about this to our grandkids, I guess. But this is not our identity. We are elect, chosen, set apart. You should say that to yourself over and over again. Being made into the image of Jesus by the Holy Spirit, having been set free by the blood of Christ, those things, church family, 
those will never change. That is who we are. And just as the psalm says, though the mountains be cast into the depths of the sea, we will not fear. You are with us. Because of what Christ has done for us, we can live in the depths of exile with great hope and with renewed focus, renewed purpose, always looking ahead. Let's pray, church family.